Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Matt Leach and I'm here with Andy Wright, Managing Director of Streamtime. How are you, Andy? I'm very good. Thanks, Matt. Nice to be here. I was about to say it's been a while since you've been here, but actually I think you're on the last one and... Maybe, Maybe depending that. on when this one comes out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> When I edit it, I think is what you're trying to say. <laughs> um, we've also got two groups to thank quickly on this episode. First up, of course, is Streamtime. Without their support, we wouldn't have done half the stuff we've done this year. Plus, we get to have Andy as well, which is a win-win. Uh, what's happening at Streamtime at the moment? Anything we should know? Yes, we've got lots of exciting stuff in the works. We actually had our first hackathon the other day as a way of trying to accelerate a few things happening in the product. That, that was exciting. I've got some posts coming up on um, kind of productivity and how to manage your team, get the get the most out of that. And also, Never Not Creative is going great guns. Um, a podcast, I hear. There is a podcast now. See, do you see that? Thank uh, you. Podcast, that was excellent. I hear. Nice. See. Excellent segue. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we've got th- we've got, got a few episodes out now, some great chats about uh, issues with gender in the industry and helping our interns, getting the best start. Um, and soon, or live now, depending on their timing, is the probably the biggest mental health study into the industry um, that's been done. And um, that will be coming out shortly. Um, so we're very excited about that. That's awesome. About mm. time. Not about time for you, because you've only really started, but it's about time that we You're too really- late for me. <laughs> <laughs> We also need to thank Adobe for having us here because we are here at the Symposium 2018 in Sydney. We're recording this on the first day, early before it all really kicks off. I'm looking forward to getting out and seeing a few talks, although I think we're probably going to be locked away interviewing people because there's some amazing people here. Speaking of which, Andy, would you like to introduce our guest? I would. So we have with us James DeVries. James has to be, I'd say, one of Australia's most famous designers. I think we're allowed to say that. As founder of Deluxe and Associates with his wife, Nicola, designed uh, most of Australia's newspapers at some point. Um, And, of course, famously won the right to redesign the Harvard Business Review in the US, which I think will be uh, one of the big topic of discussion today. I went on to be their creative director for about seven years. He recently returned to Australia and is currently the Senior Director of Strategy at Second Road, a design-led strategic innovation company that is also part of Australia. Uh, Australia. It is a part of Australia, but it's part of Accenture. <laughs> and uh, I did a, just a, little, a tiny little bit of Googling, and I, f- I found this, which was quite nice, which was a recommendation by somebody else of you on, uh, on LinkedIn. And so James is proof that the best creative minds are the best strategic minds. He can simultaneously view a problem with an insider's and outsider's perspective, which results in highly workable outcomes. He pushes those around him to think past their comfort zones, knowing that it is as important to astonish oneself as much as it is others. I was just going to use that last line because I quite like that. And um, I thought it was a really interesting way of, of thinking about it. Like we're always about trying to please others. Um, and actually, it's important to try and astonish yourself, which is nice. So welcome, James, to Australian Design Radio. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. I really love the idea of you know the image that pops into my head about you astonishing yourself late at night, working on something. <laughs> Eureka! <laughs> well, you know, probably what started that for me was when I was at design school, art college, we had this fantastic lecturer, Peter Powditch, who was a painter. And we thought we were doing a drawing class and it was really a total creativity class and we would have life models but he would say i want you to bring in kitchen sponges and we'll be painting on kitchen sponges today or Mm -hmm. things that really you you trick yourself into coming up with a completely 
different outcome and and that gave me a taste for that I think I love that yeah. I love I love that kind of class and course where you expect it to be one thing but you, you come out with so much more absolutely how does it feel when you're introduced as one of Australia's most famous designers um vaguely uncomfortable you know I'm I'm <laughs> very <was> the intention <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm honored by it I think part of it's to do with longevity you know um I've been a committed designer for my whole career you know and I still love it and I think um Australia is a, a small market and you certainly get a perspective on that when you live in Australia mm. I mean in the US but uh you know interestingly enough Australia also has all the chops and all the creativity of any country in the world and it's fabulous to be able to to earn a living here so I'm I'm very happy to be here but over the long run I think it's just you know turning up mm. as Woody Allen used to say yeah so went back into the archives and um, I read that at high school so we're going right back you like to create album covers for your favorite bands um, and they're obviously good enough for people to kind of encourage you to take up design. Did that go any further? So, you know, when I was at school, that was what the epitome of graphic design was. Because it's it like wasn't punk time and that kind of stuff, uh, right? Sadly, it was a bit before then. Oh. You know, it's, well, no, it was actually <laughs> punk time. Yeah. So, so there were these. Uh, I, I hit upon this book, the album cover album, and it was by this English design group called Hypnosis. And they um, had done all these cool conceptual covers. And I don't know if you remember the band called Yes, but they had all these Roger Dean artworks and amazing typography. And so that to me was the epitome of cool. Mm. And, you know, I loved art at school, but we had an assignment which was to do our name in a typographic way although we didn't know that word existed then. And that was when the art teacher said, you know, you should look at graphic design. And that was sort of the first, the first occasion where it created a little blinking light in my, in my mind. Do you still have it? Still got the books, still got that blinking light too. Got that name? No, <laughs> no. Shame. In I like a documentary did. of James, it would be like going into the shed yeah. you know, in, in black and white, grainy, like... Pencil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is, there's, that's the thing that kicked it all off, yes. Um, but then I went to, to design college and that was like, I couldn't believe after a fairly miserable high school experience how incredible it was to be able to turn up every day and do something that was fantastic. So it's, yeah. a, it's a double-edged sword though as well. And I think I've spoken about this before, but I know I felt a little bit like the odd one out at high school because I was the one who did the drawings on skateboards or yeah. bodyboards or surfboards or whatever it was. But then I went to art school and it was like, ah, oh, here yeah, are yeah, all yeah. my people. But then I realized I had to, I wasn't, I, I could turn out one, nice piece of work a month and I was like the artist and suddenly I was being forced to do it every single day. I know the pace changes a bit. That was certainly a factor because, you know, in, in high school there was, I think, five kids who did art in the, at the senior level and it wasn't a popular subject and so I felt very different, very special. But at the time, you know, design wasn't a really big part of Australian society either. So this was at Sydney College of the Arts. And I can remember I applied to the art school and the design school, which were both part of the same 
broader institution. And when I went for my interview with the art school, they pretty much crossed my name out as soon as they knew I'd applied to the design school because oh, that wow. was like big sellout, buddy. <laughs> so yeah. So what? But what happened after that? Because I, I guess I'm interested. If we look at uh, you know the information about you out there, really, it all starts around when you started Deluxe. So I'm interested what happened that led you to to that place. That's a good question. You know, Deluxe started partly because of technological ability, because that was when Macs got cheap enough. And before that, you had to have uh, a finished artist and you had to apply, get layout artists. And so to start a business was sort of a higher barrier to entry. And where I'd been working before that as a freelance contractor was a amazing corporate design company that specialized in annual reports called Horniak and Kenny. Oh, wow. And um, that was a real learning experience for me to learn that, that communications of that nature, we're talking big budget annual reports, mm. were the distillation of a strategy for companies. And I realized that design could be a great lightning rod for strategy. Before that, I'd worked in magazines and had really a deep love affair with editorial communication. You know, the, the magic of an editorial product has always been something that I've liked. It's the combination of writing and design and visuals. And all of those factors together sort of allowed me to have a, uh, a bit of a special start with Deluxe and Associates. Mm. I, lo- I love when um, you know, there's quite a bit bit written around the start and it was like we we got a mac and we started yeah <laughs> that's right well you know what well, all you had to do was get a mac and maybe some premises yeah um and i remember we got a haze 8880 or 8800 modem you know that was yeah. your connection to the world <laughs> making those screeching sounds and we sort of built from there we're uh, at the symposium so we should mention what what version of Adobe, where you so, are. So, this is an interesting sort of track because let's go right back. When I was working at Follow Me magazine as art director, there was an in-house typesetter who used a Berthold machine with with wow. you know, this sort of it'd pump out galleys and you'd stick them down on cardboard. Yep. And you know, Max didn't really form a part of it. I'd also worked. I remember one of my my second job ever was working for Pole Publications and we used a typesetter down the road and she was great and it was around that time that Max came out, desktop publishing, and she was saying, look, that's all well and good, but it's never going to kill off really good typesetting. And so, you know, it's been this history of change and change and change, but we used Aldous Freehand. I think that was my first ever program that I used. And then that eventually became owned by Adobe Um, and I can remember starting with Illustrator but uh, definitely when we started Deluxe and Associates Quark was the business tool. Quark was what Mm. what we used to build documents. I know some people had used FrameMaker which was Mm -hmm. almost like a big textbook making machine but Freehand and and Quark were the the tools we used. We should say that this is a podcast so obviously there's no video of this but you don't look that old. (laughs) 
No, I, before I said what I was nice. thinking. <laughs> kick yourself nice. I started when I was four, so, you know, precocious thing that I was. So, you know, I certainly don't feel that old, but when I look back, there's been a lot of change. And, and when I started at college, we learned a bunch of skills. And you, you learn to try and be really good at those skills. And we're also learning about conceptual thinking. And that was the two really big prongs of how we developed. Mm. And, you know, when I came out, I was reasonably skilled at, um, you would draw lines on cardboard with rotting pens. You have to scratch off the corners of those lines to make a nice sharp edge. And all these skills that evaporated really within five years Mm. of me leaving college. And some people really resented and regretted that because you can be supreme at that. You know, it's something you learn. And what it did was open up the industry to more and more people. So That's really interesting. I was, so I was at an event last night, which is like a speed dating event for Agda with students. Mm-hmm. So there's like 20 students. And I, I remember talking to one girl who was, I think, from the NSW. And she was talking about how... You know, she actually wished she'd gone to UTS because she would have got more skills training, whereas actually what she got was more kind of theory and conceptual training and doesn't know whether that's going to help her. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think about that now? Uh, look, that's the constant challenge in, in design education, I think, is, is what's skills and what's, what's thinking. And I think the core skill that you need to learn is the ability to learn and transition um, around software, around the, the core tools that you use, and to hold those lightly. Um, and then I think conceptual thinking is actually where you can provide bigger value in the long run. But if you have no way of getting that onto the ground, not getting the rubber on the road through those skills. So there just doesn't seem to be enough hours in those courses to teach both it's really completely. well. The thing I always say, obviously, I, I write a lot of curriculum, and the thing I always say is, like, as a new thing comes in, something needs to go out. Yeah. And, you know, originally it was it was fairly easy stuff that was specialised, like maybe packaging sort of thing. You could, you could sort of lighten the load on that. But, you know, now we're looking at, like, you know, I don't think we, we teach enough type. Yeah just because there's just not enough room. Like if, if you want to get into heavy into UX and, and the processes behind that, and then even touch on sort of AI and what that's going to be able to do, then you have to let something else go. Type is a really interesting area of education because I think it's it's really underdone. And it actually is is almost like the, uh, the spinal column yeah. of good design. It's uh, understanding and having a sensitivity to good typography takes you right into the zone of good meaning as well. Mm-hmm. So you, you're hovering between the meaning of the words, but also the cultural meaning of, of what you're using. You know, it's, it's why I always um, kind of enjoyed that, that um, Helvetica thin is, is a horror meme. <laughs> um, because, you know, it was, it was there as a proxy for cultural positioning. And I've always loved that typography can bring a cultural resonance and a cultural meaning. And I think there's more good type being designed now than ever before. So I'm a big believer in pushing typographic education. How far do you go though? Because, and I'm, I'm purely using this as, as a way to help my work, so. <laughs> 
when I was at college, we learned to design typefaces. Yeah. And again, that taught me so much stuff and really a, a love for the very small intricacies that, that each letter has. Yeah. Obviously, I don't, I don't know any schools that in their general uh, course teach to that level now. But what level should we be teaching? Is, is layout enough or? Um, I think that's, that's a pretty tough question because mm. uh, it's- You have um, to give me the answer. There are very few people- <laughs> My job's writing on this. <laughs> there are very few people who actually end up earning a living from designing type. Yep. And um, there are people who obsess about it from when they're 12 and they're the ones who become mm. great type designers like Tobias Freer Jones and people like that. I think understanding the construction of a typeface is an important educational building block. Um, so it's probably really worthwhile retaining something like that. But then it's the application of those skills and tools. And it's also about how you work with other people around type. You know, are you commissioning custom elements? Are, mm -hmm. you, are you doing long form typography? Are you doing logotypes and things like that? So it's about practicing and exercising and, and making sure people have the sensitivities to what can be varied. I can remember when I was tutoring pretty soon after I'd graduated and I was teaching a third year class and one of the students had never heard of leading in, in typography. And mm. once you know something around type, one of those dials you can adjust, you never forget it. But people need to be shown early on. What, mm. let's, let's jump forward to opening Deluxe. Um, because obviously it was just you and your wife. Yeah. It's how not long, good for a relationship, by the way. Really? Say. <laughs> <laughs> how, how long have you been together before you? Um, we'd been together about five years. Um, we got married the same year we started the company. And my wife was a performing artist and sewer. And, you know, neither of them were particularly lucrative professions. Mm. And you know, to make money to, to keep rent paid. She was working in a fabric store day to day and we realized we did the numbers and worked out it was much better if she actually ran the administrative side of the company. So, so we started and, um, you know, we, we had a few early projects, which was fairly small. And then I got a call from the art director at Fairfax and he said, um, would you like to apply for a job as art director of a new magazine we want to set up with the financial review? And me, being Mr. Small Business, said, I can't do that. I've just started my own business. <laughs> but I'd be very happy to do this for you as a contract. And they hadn't thought about doing that because Fairfax had always done everything in-house. Yep. And we had the credibility to, to make that offer. And they eventually agreed that that was a way to go. And it actually was probably the single most important factor in its success because we had the outside capacity to create changes that previous people inside had had no hope of getting through. And it was all around taking a, a, a higher quality of photography, higher quality of layout, just higher expectations overall. And we were lucky enough to be on this project before um, any of the editorial staff had been appointed and the people we were working with weren't um, experienced magazine people. And so my first question was, how big can we make this magazine? How big can the presses go? And 
we sort of defined the size based on the maximum capacity of the presses and we pushed sort of to create new high quality product all the way through and there was resistance because they were non-standard ad sizes and for Fairfax and the financial review the opportunity here was pent-up demand from advertisers who wanted high quality high quality color advertising mm. and they had an amazing ratio of 50% ads to editorial content and it went gangbusters I mean this was when newspapers were highly profitable and there weren't internet players in the marketplace mm. and they could ask these extraordinary rates so that's what began our our work with Fairfax and we had we'd always been interested in um, newspapers because they're, they're they're owned by a culture they're owned by the readers and that's a really interesting aspect of newspapers you know they're not just a push out mm-hmm. product yep um, and I'd admired the David Hillman redesign of The Guardian, which mm. was in the late 80s, and uh, always thought, wouldn't it be amazing to design a newspaper? So th- there's a, like, I've, I've worked in uh, magazines, and there's a lot of big personalities in in these places. Obviously, you, you, you were kind of given a little bit of a leg up in that there was a remit and not too many people in place straight away, but there must have been times where you really came up against it. Like, how, how do you, if you were to give advice to someone, how do you get someone into your way of thinking? I'd like the little smile. That, that's just <laughs> I feel like there's war stories I'm to be just told thinking of the that time. are long enough ago that actually <laughs> yeah. the people involved, they'll be fine with it. There'll be no not names. Even listening. Um, so I think what I really learned there is as a designer, you you have to be able to, talk editorially you have to be able to speak editor language to be successful as a designer and and when the editor William Fraser came onto this magazine we we developed a really good relationship because he respected the design role um, and it and we could have discussions around um, the best way to go and and where to push and where not to push and it was really because we could talk about the editorial intent and and what's the outcome here and of course you realize it's no use being an artiste or a, or um, someone who's self-indulgent in that role because at the heart of it most magazines are products that need to earn their way so yeah i'd learn to speak editorial <laughs> I um, there's it feels like a scratch we need to itch, but we'll let that one go. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking of when we were working on the Sydney Morning Herald. There was um, a section sub editor lead who came looking for me to punch me in the face um, because someone who didn't like us had told him that as a design group we'd banned the use of large photographs on the newspaper. And he got very upset about this and wanted to come and punch me before finding out any more. So, you know, when we were working on the newspapers, it was a, as a more vigorous environment than the magazine. So let's, let's talk about that because obviously Sydney Morning Herald, you redesigned. How, how did that come about and, and how was that different than the magazine? Um, we had, you know, created this great success with Fairfax around the magazine and the editor of the Financial Review for the financial review's survival, wanted to set up a weekend edition of the newspaper because it was only Monday to Friday at the time. 
And so we got to work on that, which was, you know, different to the current newspaper, different fonts, different Mm -hmm. layout structures. And so that gave us a bit of experience on the ground of working with those people. And because he'd been so successful, he was then moved to be editor-in-chief of the Sydney Morning Herald. We, we worked with him on a significant redesign of the Herald to, to modernise it because it had been um, fairly crusty. Mm-hmm. And that, that was released in 2000. And the same time, we also worked with them on a special newspaper for the Sydney Olympics, which was a really interesting experience as well because they had this ambitious approach to print three editions a day and distribute them at the Olympic Park. And probably more importantly, to, to resource this, they pulled people in from all over the Fairfax network around Australia and New Zealand. And everyone who worked on it had this intense experience of working across silos because it was so small. And right. they, were, they loved it. It was a new way of working for them. And it was very different to the old sort of hidebound industrial models that they'd been working in. But unfortunately, they weren't able to continue that once it all finished. But you could see a little glimmer of hope there mm. for, for different ways of working. So what, and what was your role in this, apart from the, the initial design? Were, were you involved at the Olympics, for example, in, in that kind of, what would you call it, engine room? Yeah, we were involved um, day to day with for the Olympics period, but mm. with the Sydney Morning Herald, um, we we set up the structures, and that was a was a long process because they didn't have um, great design software to work on. It was all old style, hard coded typography, and you have to think of every case. And there were some templates that they could work to, so all of that was the upfront work that was highly specialized and highly detailed to set that up and the the underlying demand there was to set up new ways of telling stories and to create new tools for telling stories in a more visual more reader appealing way and that was a real lesson too because we learned that you can set up these tools you can set up amazing ways of telling stories but there also needs to be the cultural capacity to take that on and to change to do that so to do that you need to change the incentives in the company you need to change the behaviors that are rewarded you need to do all those sorts of things and that's sort of that's probably really what set me on the pathway to where i am now talking about pathway that obviously led on to the melbourne age yep which led on to other newspaper redesigns yeah at what point did you think Okay, I'm I'm that guy who does. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, we the the benefit of learning, of course, is that you get to do some things faster and more efficiently. Yep. Yep. And I think we 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 did get good at it, and we were able to work at a pretty high level with publishers around their intent. Um, of course, being Australia, if you're the Fairfax people, mm-hmm. you're not going to get any work with News Limited. Mm. And um, we had one attempt where we tried to work with News Limited on a magazine, but when they stated that their whole intent was to kill the financial review, whom we were working for at the time as well, <laughs> we, we had to decline the role. But um, so, you know, in a way, as a sort of a, a limiting um, thing for our company, we did go further afield. You know, we worked um, with the West Australian and we worked in New Zealand 
and then I did some work in Hong Kong. We redesigned some newspapers there as well. Um, and we also set up a brand new broadsheet in Jakarta, which was an amazing experience as well. Um, were they purely English papers or were they mixed? Yeah, they were, they were English. I think at the time the South China Morning Post was trying to include some Chinese characters with, with mm. names and things like that. But we did try and work with a couple of publications in Hong Kong that were bilingual and we worked with one in China that was purely Chinese. And I realized I'm hopeless at that. <laughs> you know, typography, I love Chinese characters, mm. um, but completely illiterate in that way. So the only guidance for our design was the shape of letter forms. And that only goes so far when you're trying to design a magazine because you, know, you don't, don't know the meaning. And mm. that's why typography is so tied to meaning. So. Mm. You know, we, we tried that, but definitely I think we, we found ourselves limited to English language or, or Latin characters at the very least. And, you know, this was started to be a time when newspapers had uh, hit their glide path to their long decline. Yeah. Um, and the projects we were getting were more and more like, can you help us to design this with fewer designers or fewer journalists yeah. or... Um, we want to we want to drop the size of this and compact a few sections, and as a design job, that's quite possible and, and very doable, and you apply your thinking to that. But you're working with people who are demoralised and overworked, and you know we could see it wasn't really a, a great mm. future. Yeah. We, we could have kept expanding, and I could have travelled further and further afield, but I wanted to be home, you know, more than one week a month I wanted yeah. to wanted to be able to have some family life and uh, you know again it was chasing after clouds yeah it, it is very hard to try and motivate people whose job is to manage decline yeah um, and that industry I mean it's still there it's still managing decline yeah um, unfortunately but that kind of so obviously you went further afield and then it'd be interesting to chat about how this opportunity um, came up when it came to the HBR. And and I would also imagine that the mindset would be would have been different. Like that wasn't a job which was about managing decline. That was a job which is the other way of managing decline, which is actually how do we find more growth and how do we kind of yeah. reinvent things? Um, how did that come about? Well, that's a good point. It was, it was one of the things that made it incredibly attractive was that it was a strong organization. Um, so what happened was as a design consultant firm, we we knew that the editor had changed at Harvard Business Review and I knew that guy and we were asked if we wanted to be part of a pitch process for that and it was a very long drawn out process but we, we put in a pitch which was very much about our approach. They had a very detailed brief of what they, they thought their problem was and what they needed to look at and we realized that being an Australian-based design firm put us at a significant disadvantage. You know, we might as well be on the moon. So we, we put a lot of effort into thinking about how we would approach it and, and packaging up. I can remember we sent off this, this package of our approach to them and we wrapped it up in string and put stamps on it and um, sort of <laughs> we, we made it a special gift to unwrap for them. And that was enough to get us into a short list of design companies. So 
I went over there and presented to a conference room with about 20 people um, about how we would approach this project. And um, we, we won the project. So. And so importantly, this was an approach. It wasn't, they weren't asking for work or like, what's it going to look like? It was just, how are you going to do it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I think I've always resisted those, those sorts of approaches where you're asked to do a design for us. Mm-hmm. And I had that a bit in Hong Kong with people wanting us to design magazines. And the thing is, you can't, you can't understand what the needs are really to make a pitch. And if, if that's how people are making their choice, mm-hmm. then I'm not sure you want to work with them anyway. So, so it was very much about approach and about their needs. And we were probably more meticulous than we'd been before in, in how we addressed that. So that's what won us the job. And we were competing against a lot of companies that I only found out about afterwards were companies I have immense respect for and probably would have been very daunted if I'd known they yeah. were also in the pitch. It's Can you best. name drop? Um, Pentagram was, was one of the companies we were pitching against and some of the other famous uh, magazine design firms mm-hmm. from, from the States. Uh, so, yeah, we, we, we were lucky. And was it one of those cases where, you know, they assume that they are going to get the job and uh, therefore, you know, the person who actually put the effort in is rewarded? I think, I think that's true. Um, you know, from what I heard, they all put in their pitch documents and came and presented and a lot of what they presented was hey look at what we do we're so great you know here's here's our stuff we are the champions at this don't go past us this is classic like interview for anything really isn't it the the person that just sends off their cv and thinks that's good enough to get you through the door actually you might be disappointed with that but the person that kind of made the effort to stand out have an opinion show how things got done and what value they're going to bring wins it's really simple, really. really think about where they're going as well to yeah. kind of do their research and, and treat it like a job for a job, yeah? Yeah, and I think reputation is hugely important, but, but you can't just lean on that the whole time. Hmm. So it's, was there, um, like, is, there's always that bit, I, I think, in a pitch document where you go, that's, you know, that bit, that's the bit that gets us the job. Did you have that in your in your document? Apart um, from the beautifully wrapped package that got you there in the first place, I think that was it. Well, <laughs> we made a, a fake um, seal of the editor in chief, you know, and, and slapped that on the outside. I think that's what won us the job. <laughs> um, the ego stroke. We we wrote a list, and I presented this list when I was presenting to them of what we thought their issues were and how we would approach them, and that was fairly thorough. Mm. Um, it probably wasn't great PowerPoint technique, you know, because it was 12 dot points on a, on a slide. But that's actually what, what I think made them realize we were attentive. We, we had a sensitivity for what they'd done. I mean, it, underlying that, of course, I believe we were totally well qualified because we'd done a lot of work in finance and business mm-hmm. media and had a lot of magazine experience internationally. So, you know, we, we obviously crossed the first hurdle and then it was about... Um, what they thought the chemistry would be like. Mm. And also my approach to how we would um, try and lift the whole organisation, not just come in and do a slap-bang design job and leave again. Mm. So winning the job is one thing. Doing the job is, a, is probably an entirely different and, and new beast. Yeah. What, what was the, it like being able to transition and going, was, was there a point early on when you think, ooh, 
And uh, did we did we really want this? <laughs> no, we it, look. It was a lot of work, and we produced volumes of of approaches. We we um, we treated it as a conversation as much as anything else. You know, we we looked at cover approaches. I think how we've gone about designing publications has always been with a level of options when you're working at, at that level of detail. If you do this approach to covers, this will be a, a range of how they could look. If you do this approach, this is how you could look. The most controversial thing that gave them the shivers was uh, we we strongly proposed getting rid of the table of contents from the front cover, which was mm -hmm. their sort of defining yeah. signature look at the time. And they were very nervous about dropping that. And, and they had to sort of discuss that with Harvard Business School, who were the ultimate owners of the organization, to, to make sure we could give it a run. And it's been like that with newspapers as well. When you change things that people think are part of the legacy, there's a lot of discussion around, are you ruining the brand or yeah. are you providing for its future? And I guess really the boundaries for that are at one end, if you keep everything the same, it's just a pathway to failure. So you have to change. And at the other end is you completely ignore the heritage and you're creating a new brand which, which just drops all of the, the value from the history. Yeah. So Harvard business school yeah for anyone you know picking up hbr in an airport or something like that you would think or reading on the web you know harvard business school is the boss this is where the brand came from um and clearly like in that first iteration you had to well first not iteration revolution uh get the permission to be able to to change things did that continued is there was there this kind of master overlord view or how did that work as you went on to kind of push even further uh, it's a good question i think we we were working as part of a, a team that had been brought in to create big change because they were aware that it couldn't go on the same way and that it was starting to to take a downward trajectory um so editorial approach was very important to how things changed and um, after we finished the job, they part of my recommendations to them, and this was not self-centered at all, we said, you really need to put a creative director on so that there's some center to design. Because before that, the designers had been underlings who were basically told what the layout was by editors. Did you know anyone? Uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, I made a couple of trips to the States to help them interview for the role. Oh, wow. Um, <clears throat> and I actually recommended a few people and they didn't employ them. And so they had, they kept asking me, we, we finished the project the beginning of 2010 and they asked me all through 2010. And by the end of the year, given the circumstances of our other projects and so on, I thought, you know, this is an opportunity which is never going to come up again. And so we said yes. And uh, so then that brought me to be an insider. Mm. It's great being a consultant because you can make all these recommendations and not have to deal with the ramifications. But as an insider, um, I saw my role very much as being about building design capacity within the organization, building the underlying standard of work um, so that would appeal to 
a real public. Mm. Um, and that was part of the overall change was, was realising that this publication needed to appeal to readers, not just authors, which had been sort of the measure of success in the past. Yep. Um, and so with the, the new approach to editorial design and the new approach to the way articles went and the structure of the magazine, they realised this amazing growth, you know, sort of 20% sales growth on newsstands, 20% increase in subscriptions and so on. So they, I think there were about 230,000 subscribers when I started. And when I left, it was more like 320,000 subscribers. Wow. So, and Which in context in the magazine industry would have been a big outlier. Yeah, right? especially one that's in decline. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And... Um, you know, this is this is a sort of a story of building complexity as well. But um, the interesting thing was a part of that was just creating the lift from the potential of of improving the design and editorial. And a big part of it was was having a longer term view of building a better product that that met the needs of a of a broad audience. Was was that move over? like a, a kind of taking off of the blinkers like going i've done something similar myself recently like going from doing projects for your client to then being inside at your client is it just shows you all the other things that are actually going to make or break a solution or, or kind of a view of what you had was in mind yeah when when i started the i guess the mental model of the organization was the internet's going to be big that you know a website we've 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 agreed to have a better website and they had begun the process of um looking at a major redesign for the site and we'll manage a gentle decline to the print product because that's how things are going and it was sort of this idea of two lines that would cross eventually and who knows how steep those lines would be and after a couple of years it became very clear that what we were actually building was more of an ecosystem of of access to the brand if you're a subscriber for where you are and what you want at the time so so you know it's as a design leader it's about building capacity for things you don't know might be needs yet and you know we when i started there there were six designers all of them were magazine people one was an administrative and and there was a three day a week web person who basically found pictures from Getty Images to put onto the website. And by the time I left, it was a department of 10 or I think it was around 10. And we had a, a photo researcher, we had a infographics guy, we had only two full-time mag magazine people, we had three full-time digital people and a book person. So, you know, it's a multifaceted mm. brand. And the the challenges I always had working within an organization like that as a designer was I would I would see the need for people and I, I wanted to hire talented designers as my sort of core need. And the the approach to hiring was typically tell us exactly what is in the job and what are the job tasks? And it's not really a good way to hire people in that field, which mm. has got all this fuzzy stuff. And I would try and hire for attributes and attitude. And so the HR department, who were very well-intentioned, would screen resumes before 
before I saw them, say, this person looks like they're great. And I'd take one look at their portfolio and realize they were appalling. So you have to check against against the work as well. Because I think, um, you know, as much as what we've talked about is it really became a case study about what to do to kind of reinvigorate a magazine. It also has become a case study for how to build a, a design culture. And, you know, you think about some of the people who've gone and worked there. Um, it, it seems to have this most amazing kind of vibrant, energetic, completely sold on what they're doing and why they're doing it. How did you build that? Um, that's a, it's a great compliment. Uh, I built it by by making sure that that was my job, mm. I think. Um, when I first started Deluxe and I started hiring people, I realized pretty quickly that I wasn't the sort of leader who wanted to be the best at everything and mm. would swoop in over the top and say, no, no, I've got to, you've got to do it this way and I'm better than you at everything you do. I realized that the reason you grow as a company is you actually tap into people's talent and their own energy. So I, I brought that to bear there and, and hired people that I believed had the right potential. And my role was very much to advocate for their success. So, you know, when, you, when you're working as a creative director in an organization like that, you're not actually sitting down at a desk doing a lot of detailed design. A lot of it is about making sure other people are having the success they need in what they need to do. And so you're trying to create a pathway and the right expectations of where to place priorities for that team. So I think that's what, what led to that, that growth. Mm-hmm. And I always thought, and, and this was really a big part of what the art directors of the magazine's approach was as well, that because we have the vast majority of subscribers, it actually gives us permission to do some, some more out there design. Mm-hmm. And you know, at the core, we're producing detailed features which need to be read in the in the print magazine, but it gives us a capacity to to have a bit of playfulness as well. And it's such a misunderstanding of the audience to think, oh, it's all middle-aged guys in tweed jackets with yeah. leather elbow patches. It's a very diverse readership, and they are culturally aware. They understand that we're in a visual culture as well, and so. We tried to bring in a very strong stream of, of fine art and and being a bit more out there with typography as we... I know, I know for it. me, I remember being given one and thinking, why would I want to read this? And then reading it and going, this is exactly what I want to read, actually. And it was, it was suddenly targeted, so I understood things. Um, it didn't treat me like an idiot, but it, it, it kept it high enough that I felt like I still had a lot to learn. Yeah, I think we we realized there were different needs for different reader types and sometimes it corresponded with their status in organizations and sometimes it didn't. But, mm. you know, we had a lot of global readers in developing markets as well. You know, a hu- I think our second biggest audience segment online was in India. And they're energetic young people who want to be successful and a lot of people in, in businesses who are leading people for the first time or have some management problem they need to deal with. So that was a view of a problem-solving approach for our readers. And then there was another aspect, which was there was a group of readers who were really interested in the more philosophical idea side of, mm-hmm. of what we did and, and what's happening in the field and, and the bigger ideas. So we, we, 
every issue tried to make a balance of, of mm-hmm. things that would appeal to that. We're running out of time slowly and we haven't even talked about why you're back in Sydney. The one thing I wanted to quickly ask though, I know when you moved to HBR, there was talk about Deluxe being on a hiatus. Is that, or is it done? Oh, man, you're asking the tough question. <laughs> um, the company structure still exists. Yeah. And not as a tax shelter, but <laughs> it's there at some stage. It, it may come back into play. Yeah. Um, uh, I just found having a, a company structure was a very helpful way of, of being able to operate independently. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know cost a bit to keep it mm-hmm. there as an existing thing. But I, I so enjoyed and so admired the team I had at Deluxe that, you know, I'd, I'd like to be able to reproduce that in some way in the future. Um, so it may or it may not happen. But um, coming back with, with the um, experience of working around strategy and management and all those ideas and all those people at, at uh, Harvard Business Review and my own commitment and belief in design, coming to Second Road felt like an absolutely natural place to land because it's, it's design-led and it's very much around um, taking design into dealing with bigger problems, mm. stickier problems, where there are lots of different stakeholders. So It's amazing. Yeah. So just to introduce you, you're as the principal director of, of strategy at Second Road now. And Second Road is really interesting because I'm always surprised about what Second Road's involved in. So even even personally, you know, I've seen the Second Road people in Tasmania where I've been working for the last couple of months and you know, doing major things with kind of infrastructure of whole cities. How, because I mean, and you were saying the same. I, and I used just, to come across Second Road all the time doing work with... Um, Census and Telstra, Second mm-hmm. Road were in there a lot. And it's always like, oh, we want to, you know, we've got ideas for things. Oh, that's no, right. Uh, Second Road handling, handling, handling that. <laughs> it's, it's, so it's, you were basically <laughs> deeply annoyed by Second Road. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it's like the secret designers. They are. It's, it's like, like the, they've got their fingers in everything, but no one really the knows. The are in there. And like <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting because Second Road is very much about um, building the capacity to think differently yeah. for an organization and, and helping an organization to, to take on big amorphous problems that that have lots of different stakeholders and they're, they're classic wicked problems and, and mm. beyond for organizations. And we help them to imagine a new future and, and to create that future. And it might be around um, uh, envisaging new value propositions that they can create or it might be reimagining their organization and how it could be structured to to create new value or it might be just about helping them to develop a strategy to to leap ahead in a in a transformative way so you know one of the defining things i think is we we don't do incremental changes it's about trying to change the big picture it's around trying to instill new capacity and a new culture at, at the heart of it um second road is trying to humanize the organization so it's very human-centered and it's i don't know if you experienced that working in launceston but um it, it tries to understand that that humans can have this immense potential and if you get people to work and think together better through conversation and co-design 
you can achieve huge outcomes without 200-page PowerPoint decks. <laughs> it, it was quite amazing. I had um, Alex come to do a, a talk we did on um, data-driven design. And we had a whole bunch of people from different companies who, you know, that that's their um, uh, that's their bread, what what they do. And everyone came from a very different point of view, either very analytical, looking at the numbers. And it was interesting. Alex talked about Second Road, and it was all kind of about the people and about uh, the. Um, <coughs> I'm trying to think of what the the qualitative data that you were getting yeah uh, which was really interesting and i know a lot of people in the audience had maybe at that point been a little bit confused about how this could actually work for them and then when she spoke they were like ah yeah i think i've got the, my, my way in i think you know especially things like data-driven design um the important thing is not to let the tools and the products drive your decision making it's about thinking of what those tools and products can allow you to do as new ways of working, create new types of work for people, and what are the implications of that. And so then, if that's tied to a bigger vision of where the company wants to be in the future, then the decisions around how you apply those technologies make a lot more sense. And you're not captivated by, oh, we've got to spend all this money on X, Y, or Z. It's, it seems like a company that has a lot of very structured formulas as well. So I'm, I've got to say I'm still learning a lot of the tools mm. and, and techniques of Second Road. And those things, which we call heuristics, mm -hmm. are ways of trying to flip a group or flip some thinking into a way that's constructive. So they're like Lego blocks in a way but they're not the actual value that's, that's brought to bear. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're a range of tools. And some of them are fairly common with, with other design methodologies. But at the heart of it is this, this big concept that you know, we take on big design and big conversations through co-design and, and getting people together. And um, then to help a group move from A to B you, you bring a lot of these tools to bear. It's a form of building a common language as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and a common understanding and a common concept of what could be. Yeah. So, you know, that's a big part of it. There are a few human-centered design-led businesses now in Accenture. Do, are you collaborating, overlapping, completely separate? How's, how's that working out? Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, the big, the big consulting firms have realized that they need to invest in in this field a lot and Fjord is the big international um, experience design company that Accenture has and they're fantastic talented experience design people and um, they're often creating amazing products and, and mm -hmm. building things for clients um, on the technology side and we tend to to come in at a level which is more about transformative direction for an organization and so there's not there's not a huge crossover mm -hmm. in that area you know certainly in the middle outcomes for us will move into experience design and, and mm -hmm. human-centered design um, and we're still working on some projects together and and trying to really understand how we can make one and one equal three between us <laughs> um, but there's not there's not a huge amount of conflict or, or crossover
I'm afraid that time. brings us to time actually way over time. So, but it's been so, and we haven't, I feel like we've got so much more that we, we should be and could be talking about. But where can people find out more about you and not the James DeVries, who's an actor who is known for playing the scientist number two in the 2000 film Flying Over Mother? Flying Over Mother. What yeah, Flying Over yeah. Mother. I just, I want to see it because it's such a great name. Yeah. I think that was me. <laughs> um, uh, so if people go to secondroad.com.au and they can have a look at, at what we do, that's a good start. And there's profiles of staff on there. Otherwise, you know, I don't have my own blog or I don't have my own website. Happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. I think that's a reasonable tool. When you're creative director of a, of a prominent magazine, you get a lot of people who want to <laughs> connect with you. Um, but uh, yeah, very happy to chat to people. And, and uh, one thing that I really wanted to do coming back to Australia is try and contribute to the, the fraternality of, of the design profession in Australia, which I think is maturing mm. really well and, and find connections, you know, and not have it as a, a bunch of seagulls bickering over scraps of chips on the beach. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of potential and a lot of voice we can have as a group. Where can they find out about you, Andy? Uh, you can find me in most uh, social media things. So at A-D-W-R-I-T-Y or at Streamtime or at Never Not Creative, which is at N-V-R Not Creative because the handles don't have enough characters in them. <laughs> <laughs> it's your fault for choosing a large name. Uh, you can find this episode and more at australiandesignradio.com and you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram and SoundCloud on Oz Design Radio. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you.